snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. When asked about the reality of human existence, French philosopher René Descartes answered by coining his famous dictum, I think, therefore I am. Yet, in the eyes of British cook and food writer Fuchsia Dunlop, for Chinese people, there is always this long-hold philosophy, I eat, therefore I am. China is a culture in which food has always been extremely important. If you think that the you know, in the past, the religious practice was all about offering food to gods and ancestors. And all your great philosophers used food as a metaphor to describe the important questions of life. So I think that food just very naturally is a window into all kinds of aspects of Chinese history, culture and society. Namely, Britain's greatest authority on Chinese food by The Guardian. Fuchsia Dunlop has written passionately about Chinese culinary culture for over two decades and offered hands-on recipes for her readers to make authentic Chinese food at home. Recently, this celebrated author and Sinophile's memoir, Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper, was translated into Chinese. In this episode of Ink and Quill, she joins the conversation with our reporter Shi Yu via a phone call to retrace her apprenticeship at a Chinese cooking school, discuss her fondness for Sichuanese cuisine, and how she, a British cook, becomes a true convert to the Chinese way of eating. So I know, Fuchsia, you are a cook, and you are a multi-award-winning author, and also an expert on Chinese culinary culture. So you have committed a great deal of your professional career to Chinese gastronomy. So I wonder, did you grow up eating or cooking Chinese food? Actually, not at all. So the only Chinese food I had as a child was the occasional Chinese takeaway, which was, you know, a very basic and sometimes quite terrible form of Chinese food. I loved it, but it was just sweet and sour pork balls, egg fried rice, you know, very, very simplified. Uh -huh. But I did grow up eating extremely international food, which was very unusual for 1970s England, mm -hmm. because my parents had a lot of foreign friends, and my mother was a teacher of English to foreign students in Oxford. Mm -hmm. And so she had students from all over the world, and often they would come to our house and cook meals. So we had Japanese, Iranians, Sudanese, Sicilians, people from all over the world came to cook for us. And some of them also lived with us. So um, I was definitely used to eating a great variety of tastes. And my mother's a wonderful and adventurous cook too. Mm. So um, I didn't grow up just eating roast beef and roast potatoes. <laughs> So it sounds like food has been a great part of your life since childhood. Yeah, I mean, I always loved eating. My mother claims that she can remember the gorgeous smile on my face when I first tasted food. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I always loved eating. And also, I loved cooking. And so from when I was a very small child, I used to help my mother in the kitchen. And it just was something that always made me happier than anything else. 
And then when I was a teenager, I started cooking really seriously mm-hmm. and reading cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And I did some professional jobs, like I would make people birthday cakes for children for, for money. And I sometimes, you know, did little bits of work with cooking. You know, when I was 11, I remember telling a teacher at school that I wanted to be a chef. Mm-hmm. And he thought I was a bit crazy. He laughed at me because, you know, I grew up in Oxford, which is a very academic city, and I was good at school. And so people thought, oh, she'll go to university. But the thing that I always really wanted to do was cook. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, you actually started English literature at university. So what I made, did. So what <laughs> made you, again, interested in China and eventually brought you to this country? Well, I suppose that at university I studied English and I carried on cooking very seriously for mm. fun when I was at university. Mm. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a career, but I did know two things. One is that I wanted to travel and learn a foreign language. Mm. And one was that I wanted to do something to do with food. Anyway, um, after leaving university, I had some debts. So I got a job to pay off my debts. And I ended up being the... Um, a sort of sub-editor for a publication about East Asia. Mm. So I was just correcting the English of all this material about East Asia, including China. And I just got very interested in China. And so a few months later, I went on holiday. I went backpacking around China for one month. This was in 1992. Mm. And I was just completely fascinated. I just, I thought it was so interesting and such a you know, just an extraordinary country. So I came back to London and I started learning Mandarin Chinese in evening classes. And that's really how it started. And then sometime later, I applied for a scholarship. I wanted to know China more deeply. I applied for a British Council scholarship um, to study in China. And that's when I really threw myself into China. <laughs> But how did you end up in Chengdu, you know, the provincial capital of Sichuan province? Well, during my travels in China, I'd visited Chengdu, and um, I sort of fell in love with the place and decided I wanted to go back there. And also, ate some of the most brilliant and interesting and different Chinese food that I've ever had. So um, I knew, I mean, food is very important to me, and I thought it would be great to go and live in a place that had such a famous cuisine. You know, I'd only tasted a little bit of it, but I knew Chengdu would be a good place to live and to eat. Mm. And the other thing is that I really didn't want to go and live in a sort of expat center like Beijing or Shanghai. Uh, I didn't want to be tempted to spend all my time with foreigners. I really wanted to make Chinese friends and to get to understand China. So Chengdu was fantastic from that point of view because there were only... You know, a couple of hundred foreigners in Chengdu in the mid 1990s, and so my classmates and I, we all just got really involved in Chinese culture. We made Chinese friends, and so you know, and and of course, the food was amazing. So, any surprising discovery during your time staying there? Well, I mean, I had so many things that would seem very strange to a foreigner who'd never been to China before. But I suppose the most difficult thing for any foreigner in China is that Chinese people enjoy eating a whole load of foods which have very particular textures mm-hmm. and sometimes no taste. So it's all about kogan. Yeah. So there are lots of things that Westerners think. What's the point in eating this? It's just like eating a rubber band or a plastic bag, you know, <laughs> uh, because it doesn't have any taste. And I think also Chinese people enjoy certain textures that Westerners really dislike, like、mm-hmm. bristly, like slithery, 
slimy things. Mm, yeah. Even the words in English sound very nasty. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so when I was first in Chengdu and since, I was always being given by my Chinese friends things to eat that to normal Western point of view would be really disgusting. And because my mother brought me up to be very polite and to eat everything, I did eat everything and I tried everything, but I didn't really enjoy it. And I think it took me a few years before I really started to enjoy the pleasure of the mouthfeel mm. of goose intestines, of chicken's feet, oh, of yeah. all these things. So um, I would say that it was these texture foods. And I think the Sichuanese, maybe more than anyone else in China, like they love these strange bits of offal and texture foods. And actually recently I... After many years, for the first time, I had um, what they call Tiantang Paradise, mm. which is the upper palates of pigs. So it's like extremely chewy, rubbery, crisp, you know, the <laughs> upper bit of the mouth of pigs. So yeah. that's one of the most extraordinary things because it was just like, wow, you know, how did you even think of eating this? <laughs> 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 because sometimes, even if you visit a Cantonese restaurant in the UK, which have been there for a really long time, when you order some quite classic ding sound like braised chicken feet, you know, people still react quite strongly, like saying, how could you get to eat something like that? It's just so disgusting. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it's partly because Westerners don't really have the same appreciation of texture. Mm hmm so if you don't appreciate texture, there's no point in eating a goose intestine, mm -hmm. you know. So there's that. There's also what my father calls the grapple factor, which is when things are very complicated to eat. So, for example, a chicken's foot has lots of little bones and not very much meat. Mm -hmm. So firstly, you can't really eat it with a knife and fork. Yeah. You have to eat it with chopsticks. And you also have to do a sort of thing when you shuffle it about in your mouth and you get the bones out and you sort of slurp a bit and then you spit out the bones. And I think, you know, this is something that's quite rude in Western, in English culture anyway, like you don't spit things out. So it can make people, I think, feel very awkward. You know, how do you eat it politely? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and I think also it's just, it's a cultural thing because I think in China there's a real pleasure in eating things that are different and exotic and unusual. Mm. So the greater the range of tastes and textures, the more exciting. Yeah. So if you give someone a very unusual part of an animal, it has a kind of novelty value. So people, you know, it just makes everything more varied. And I think Westerners, they just, you know, they see all these little parts of animals as just being rubbish that you throw away. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. So apparently you have been quite intrepid in trying different Chinese delicacies. But when and how did you transform this adventurous spirit into a professional interest in Chinese cooking? Well, um, I suppose I started very early on when I was living in Chengdu. Mm. Um, having always loved to cook, I really wanted to learn how to make some of these amazing dishes and amazing flavors, which you know I had no idea about Chinese cooking. And so I started asking in small restaurants around the university if I could go and study in the kitchen, you know, just odd days here and there. Mm -hmm. And partly because in the 1990s, foreigners anyway were very unusual in Chengdu. We were a bit interesting, you know. <laughs> and also it was very unusual having a university 
a student and a woman and a foreigner who wanted to cook. So I think people thought it was rather funny and interesting. And so a lot of them said yes. So I started going into kitchens and just watching how things were made. And it was so interesting because it was completely different. Um, you know, all the methods and the flavors were different from what I was used to mm. at home. And then um, a German friend and I heard about this famous Sichuan cooking school. So we just cycled over there one day and we said, please, can we have some lessons? And um, the cooking school agreed to give us some private classes over a month or two. And we went, I think, twice a week or something. And we had private classes and we learned a few classic Sichuanese dishes. And um, I just had such a wonderful time. I mean, the food was incredible, and it was just so exciting to begin to understand how to make it. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, when I'd finished at the university and I went off traveling for the summer, I came back to Chengdu, and I didn't want to go home. And um, I went to visit my teachers at the cooking school, and they just said, well, we have a professional chef's training course starting, so would you like to join in? So I just said yes. <laughs> and so I did this course. So it was like three months full time with about 50 young Sichuanese men and mm. two young women, all taught in Sichuan dialect, learning, you know, the basics of Sichuanese cuisine. So I guess that's where it started being professional. I have to say, I didn't do the course as a professional thing. Uh. I did it because I loved it. And I wanted, you know, it was just a sort of interest. But um, I guess that's what gave me a sort of professional foundation and helped teach me, you know, the language of Chinese cookery, the, the cooking methods, the techniques. Mm. And then it was just a gradual thing that of just, you know, just really out of interest that I kept wanting to find out more and more because it was so interesting and delicious. Yeah, 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 that's true. You know, as far as I know, this cooking school you have just mentioned is a famous Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. Yes. So what's like to be their first full-time foreign student? You know, when I look back on it, I think, wow, that was a very challenging and crazy experience. You know, being the only foreigner <laughs> they've ever had in a class of like 50-something local people. And, um, you know, the language was a challenge also because cooking has its own vocabulary. So there were all these Chinese characters for cooking methods and, yeah. you know, cutting that I'd never learned before. So, yes, in retrospect, it was really crazy difficult. But actually, I had such a great time. I just loved it. And um, you know, in some ways, learning cooking is easier than other things because there's a practical element. So there mm -hmm. were demonstrations and it was, you know, this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, the, the most challenging thing was that most of my classmates had never met a foreigner before. And so they were a bit shy and awkward around me. And so some of my classmates would only call me Lawai. They didn't <laughs> want to talk to me. Oh. And, you know, they didn't really know how to interact with a foreigner. But some of them were very nice. And my teachers were so kind. And, and basically, I just enjoyed the cooking so much that mm -hmm. it was a fantastic experience. That was British food writer Fuchsia Dunlop recalling her decade-long gastronomic journey in China. Coming up... I think the biggest misconception about Chinese food in the West, which seems completely crazy, is that it's very unhealthy. I think no one in the world understands how to eat for health better than the Chinese. You have this incredible culture of food as medicine. And every Chinese person I know has a sort of understanding of how you can adjust your diet to keep yourself in good health or to treat disease. 
Shi Yu will continue her conversation with Miss Dunlop after this short break. So don't go away. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. So, after studying at Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine, at which point did you decide to become, you know, a food writer? Well, I suppose that ever since I was a teenager, I had always written about food personally. So, I always kept a diary, and the diary always turned into menus and recipes and <laughs> descriptions of food. <laughs> so, I sort of started doing that just for myself in Chengdu, keeping notebooks. Which ended up being all about food, and then、um, after the cooking school, a while after, I went back to England and I went back to university to do a masters in Chinese studies. While I was there, I just found it extraordinary that no one really knew anything then about Sichuanese cuisine. So、mm. you had this huge region with a famous cuisine and food that was so delicious, and that I knew people in England would love. Why don't they know anything about it? So I, at some point, I had the idea that I would like to、um, write a Sichuanese cookbook, and I made a proposal and I sent it to five publishers, and they all rejected it, and they all said it was too narrow the focus, and that no one would be interested in a regional Chinese cookbook, <laughs> which is pretty incredible considering Sichuan was about the size of France, you know. But anyway, this is just to do with Western, you know, ideas about Chinese cuisine. But anyway, I went on with university. I wrote. A letter to Time Out magazine,、oh. which did this restaurant guide and restaurant reviews, and I explained to them my experience and said, you know, could I review Chinese restaurants for them? And they said yes. And I ended up、um, writing little reviews for the guide and eating at all the Chinese restaurants in London.、Mm-hmm. So that was my first professional food writing. And then,、um, anyway, about a year later or something, I decided to write another book proposal, and、um, and I wrote it very seriously this time, and I spent a lot of time, and、um, I sent it to two publishers, and they both wanted it. So then I had a book contract. So I went back and did a bit more research, and then when my book came out,、um, it had really fantastic reviews, and I think, you know, lots of people were really,、um, they were just so surprised because. I think there is so little material in English about regional Chinese cuisines,、yeah. and so it just you know that book it won a prize, it attracted a lot of attention. That really changed my life because then lots of you know magazines and newspapers were interested in me writing articles for them about Chinese food, and I got invited to give lectures. So that's how it really started.、Mm. And I noticed that since then you have written extensively about different Chinese regional cuisines. Yet among all of these in your book, shark's fin and Sichuan pepper, you kind of twist Samuel Johnson's words and change it into when the man is tired of Sichuanese cuisine, he is tired of life. So I wonder what is so special about Sichuan cooking among all the other major regional cuisines in China. You know, in Sichuan they say 一菜一个白菜百味 Each dish has its own style, and a hundred dishes have a hundred different flavors. And I think that's the thing. Sichuanese cuisine has the most extraordinary variety of tastes of any Chinese cuisine. So it's just endlessly stimulating, and you know you never get bored. <laughs> and the thing that's also very interesting about it is that the heart and soul of Sichuanese cuisine is in the flavors, and、mm. not. Special expensive ingredients or anything like that. 
So, you know, one dish which I think expresses the genius of Sichuanese cooking is yuxiang qiezi, you know, uh -huh. fish fragrant eggplant, aubergine. Because this is a very simple ingredient, but using the arts of Sichuanese flavors, you make it into something just insanely delicious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that's the thing. And I, and I also think that Sichuanese cuisine has a very modern appeal because people living in big, big cities now all over the world, they have so many choices. You know, we're all very spoiled. We can have such a stimulating variety of dishes. And I think that, you know, Sichuanese food is the one that just goes on being exciting. Yeah. You never get bored with it because it has highs and lows. It has spicy and sweet and, and gentle, all these different flavors. So I think that's what's so special. And also Sichuan is just a wonderful place. I mean, it just has a very charming and relaxed atmosphere, you know? Just, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot, I mean, I know Chinese people as well, but a, a lot of foreigners go to Sichuan and they just fall in love with the place and the people. Yeah, and I think people have misunderstood Sichuanese cuisine because as a mention of Sichuanese cooking, you know, many people just immediately think about dishes ablaze with hot red chilies and tongue-nubbling paste. It's all about hot and spicy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, these dishes are the most dramatic dishes, you know, fish in a great cauldron of chilies and Sichuan pepper. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Sichuan cooking in the last 10 years or so has become popular all over the world. And it's these dishes which have become most popular. So Sichuanese cuisine is kind of like a victim of its own success. And they are dramatic. They attract your attention. They look incredible. But they're only representative of one aspect of mm -hmm. Sichuanese food. And so I think there's a, a sort of danger that people, they just overlook the subtlety and the variety. You know, not all Sichuanese food is spicy. And even the food that has chili in it, there mm -hmm. are many different kinds of chili. It's not just mala, numbing and hot. There's also, for example, yuxiangwei, fish fragrant flavor, mm. which is a very gentle, sort of sweet kind of heat, you know? Yeah. And um, so I think Sichuan has the advantage that it has this famous symbol, you know, chili and Sichuan pepper. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that people simplify it. Yeah. And besides Sichuan, I know you have also taken on tours and food adventures among other parts of China for the past two decades. So I wonder, what's the most interesting thing you have discovered throughout those journeys? Uh, it's almost impossible to say because Chinese food culture is so rich and interesting. And I find wherever I go, I'm surprised and fascinated <laughs> by what I find. But um, in recent years, my last book, called Land of Fish and Rice was about the Jiangnan region. Mm. So Zhejiang, Jiangsu, Shanghai. And, and that region is one that I have been very interested in, you know, partly because it's a cultural center of Chinese gastronomy. So historically, many of China's great food writers came from this region. Mm -hmm. And that's where people sort of talked about food, wrote about food, and um, developed an exquisite style of cooking. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that has shown me a very different side of Chinese food culture from Sichuan. So quieter, more refined, more gentle, and very historic. So that's maybe like particularly going to Hangzhou and one amazing restaurant called Longjing Cao Tang, the Dragon Well Manor, where they 
cook a sort of, you could almost say classical Chinese cooking, the kind of food that the great 18th century gourmet Yuan Mei would mm-hmm. have eaten with a very green and wonderful ingredients they get directly from farms and fishermen. Yeah. So that has been another great influence on me. Mm-hmm. Besides that, are there any gastronomic regions of China that you wish you could visit more and discover more? Yeah, well, one place I, I haven't been and I really should go is Shandong. Ah. Because I have had Lu Tai Shandong cooking in Beijing, mm-hmm. so I know a little bit about it. But mm-hmm. historically, that is one of the great cuisines. And of course, that also has a very rich culinary history. So that's kind of next on my list to visit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But China is so enormous. I mean, I just feel, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. There are still places I haven't been. And there's always going to be more to learn. Mm. And, and, you know, one thing I really like about your book, especially Shark's Fin in Sichuan Pepper, is that it's not just about recipes. You have also talked about food culture, you know, food within their rich historical and cultural context. And it seems that China is such a food-obsessed country in which many things can relate to food. Well, I think it's just China is a culture in which food has always been extremely important. You know, if you think that the, you know, in the past, the religious practice was all about offering food to gods and ancestors, yeah. and all your great philosophers used food as a metaphor to, mm. um, you know, to describe the important questions of life. So I think that food just very naturally is a window into all kinds of aspects of Chinese history, culture, and society. So um, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It was just that in learning about food, I found that I was learning about other aspects of China. Mm. So now, after studying Chinese gastronomy for 20 years, in your opinion, what are the biggest myths or, or biggest misconceptions about Chinese food in the West? Do you think those perception of Chinese food change? Well, I think the biggest misconception about Chinese food in the West, which seems completely crazy, I'm sure, if you're Chinese, is that it's very unhealthy. So Mm. a lot of Westerners think Chinese food is unhealthy. And that's because the most popular and the most famous Chinese food is all deep fried, it's all meat and seafood, and it's all, you know, lots of strong sauces full of salt and sugar and MSG and all this sort of thing. And I think no one in the world understands how to eat for health better than the Chinese. You have this incredible culture of food as medicine. And every Chinese person I know has a sort of understanding of how you can adjust your diet to keep yourself in good health or to treat disease. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really crazy, and it's something that I'm always talking about to Westerners and always writing about, trying to get people to understand that the Chinese diet is a model of balance and health, and also it can be a model for sustainability, because apart from you know the the sort of the elite practice, actually the way most people in China eat traditionally, um, you eat a lot of vegetables and tofu and rice mm. or wheat and not very much meat. And actually the Chinese way of cooking is brilliant at um, making vegetables taste delicious 
And at a time when we all, all people all over the world, we need to eat less meat and fish for environmental reasons and for health reasons. Um, I think the Chinese cooking and Chinese food offers a real a model of how to do it and how to eat delicious food, but with just that's more healthy. Mm. Um, so I think that that's one of the misconceptions. And the other is just that, that Chinese cuisine is just one cuisine. You know, when people talk about Chinese food, it's in a way oversimplification because China is this huge like continent mm -hmm. and every province has its own style of cooking. So we, in a way, we should really be talking about Chinese cuisines, the plural, yeah. not just Chinese cuisine. Yeah. But I do think it's changing so in the last 10, 15 years, regional Chinese restaurants have been opening up in cities all over the world, really, um, including London, where I live. So we now have Sichuanese, Hunan, Dongbei, various different regional cuisines. So already people can just see and taste that Chinese food is not the simple thing that they once thought it was. So I think this is changing. And I have to say also that Chinese people are just as bad in stereotyping Western food because so many Chinese people have said, oh, Western food is very simple and monotonous. And I think from a Western point of view, it's ridiculous to talk about Western food as if it was one thing. You know, we have all these different countries and climates and so on. And it's a bit the same the other way around with talking about Chinese food, you know. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, people should be more open-minded to food cultures from different countries. So last but not least, Fuchsia, do you have any tips for those who want to try their hands on Chinese cooking or just want to approach a Chinese restaurant? Well, I suppose, you know, get a good Chinese cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that the important thing to remember, sometimes people feel intimidated by Chinese cooking. They think it's all very complicated. Yeah. But... Of course, at the highest levels, Chinese cooking is very complicated and elaborate. Mm -hmm. But Chinese cooking is also what many Chinese people just quickly make for dinner every day <laughs> out of simple ingredients. And so everyday Chinese cooking is not intimidating or difficult. You just have to go to one Chinese supermarket and buy, I don't know, eight or ten basic seasonings, you know, soy sauce, Chinese vinegar, sesame oil, mm -hmm. a few things, and then you're set up to do lots of cooking. In fact, one of my books, Every Grain of Rice, Simple Chinese Home Cooking, is exactly designed for that, mm -hmm. to tell people what they need to buy, what basic techniques they need to just get started with Chinese cooking. And I know a lot of people who've used this book to get started and who found that Chinese cooking is something they can just incorporate in their daily life mm. in the West. Yeah. Um, and as for going for Chinese restaurants, I think in the past there was a real problem that Chinese restaurants in London and other places, they had two menus. So they had one menu in English which just had all the Western Chinese food, like sweet and sour pork. <laughs> yeah. And then they had another sort of secret Chinese menu, which had all the interesting dishes that Chinese people would eat. Yeah. Um, so in those days, this is like 20 years ago, it mm -hmm. was very difficult. Even if you wanted to try real Chinese food, it was very difficult to know what you could order. But I think that's changed. And now many Chinese restaurants offer more authentic and real Chinese food. 
And so I think just be adventurous. And also another tip is that it's always worth looking at what people are eating on other tables and then saying, I'd like some of that, please. <laughs> just chat <laughs> it out. You... I, I like what they have. Yes, because then, you know, you can try new things. But I think it's very interesting how, I mean, this has been particularly noticeable in New York, mm. that there's a younger generation of Chinese people who are opening restaurants, which are very sort of stylish and modern, and have real Chinese food, and they have menus which are translated into good English. Mm -hmm. And I think these kind of restaurants are really encouraging Westerners to experience Chinese food in a different way and to try new things. That was Shuri talking with British cook and food writer Fuchsia Dunlop on Chinese food, culture and travel. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget, there is always something interesting taking place in the literary world. As such, we always do our best to try to keep you updated. To learn more about us, you can subscribe to our podcast by searching the keywords Ink and Quill on iTunes. Any feedback or comments are welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Yang Yong. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>